Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for every good and perfect gift. Lord, we want to say and acknowledge that you are God and we are not. Help us, Lord, this morning, this, this week, Lord, to make you number one in everything. Help us to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Who am I? That's a question that all of us ask ourselves at probably many different points in our lives. Teenagers ask it. Adults ask it. You know, midlife crisis is actually a crisis of identity. Who am I? It's a really important question. For some, identity is shaped by family, friends, or culture. Others find their identity in their work. I'm a lawyer. Or sports. I'm a football player. Or a hobby. I'm a gamer. Still others find their identity, their sole identity in their sexuality. I am gay. Or their gender. I am trans. Yet do these substitutes actually describe who we are or how we feel and what we do or what we like? This question of identity, who am I, was a question that I really wrestled with. I was not raised in a Christian home. My parents raised me with very traditional Chinese values that I can distill to three things. Obey your parents, do well in school, and practice piano. (laughs) I wrestled with my sexuality from a young age, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. In my early 20s, I no longer kept a secret. I came out of the closet. I began living openly as a gay man in the gay community. So I'm originally from Chicago, and I moved at that point to Louisville, where I was going to dental school. And after a year of dental school, I told my parents, I made this declaration, I am gay. The timing couldn't have been any worse. Through that crisis, my mother came to faith, and then my father did as well. But I went the total opposite direction, wanted nothing to do with their crazy religion, And I spent most of my free time in the gay clubs, and I went from relationship to relationship seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found, but it left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. And I want to be really clear here, not all gay men do drugs. Some do, some don't. This is just part of my story. But I also want to tell you that when you encounter Jesus, he's going to impact every aspect of your life. So I began experimenting with drugs, but like my classmates, I was broke. If I was going to do drugs, I needed to find a way to support my habit, and I did that by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. See, I actually thought I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was receiving my doctorate, the administration of the school expelled me. So my parents flew from Chicago to Louisville. And I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad, he was a dentist. He knew the dean very well. All they needed to do was a threatening lawsuit, and I would stay in school for three months and get my doctorate. Besides, isn't that what any good Chinese parent should do anyway? To my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mom told the dean, it is not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. 
And she said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. See, my mom knew that when it comes to her kids, nothing is more important than following Jesus. Even more important than education, even more important than career. You know, the sad reality is many people in America may go to church on Sunday and worship God, but then they'll return home and worship idols, the idol of education, the idol of career, the idol of their 401k. And in essence, we actually are forcing our kids to do the same. Think about this. Are parents putting more emphasis on their children getting their homework done, getting a better grade, getting into a good school, all good things? Or should Christian parents be putting more emphasis, actually the most emphasis upon following Jesus? Nothing is more important than following Christ. It's no wonder why many kids grow up in church. They go off to college, maybe even good colleges, Ivy League schools, and they leave their faith behind because maybe actually they weren't really worshiping God in the first place. Nothing is more important than following Jesus. But honestly, I was not happy about that decision. I felt like my mom wasn't on my side. She was on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago, to the bright lights and big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took her over the drug scene in the gay community, and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving a creature rather than the creator. Because in my world, I had become God. My parents had no clue that I was doing drugs. But they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to me the love of Christ, and I wanted nothing to do with it. They came to visit me one time in Atlanta, and I told them to get out. Interesting thing was, they were not preaching at me. They weren't telling me I was living in sin. I knew what they believed. But, you know, just the fact that God had so radically transformed their lives that they radiated Jesus that was offensive to me, and I told him to leave. Before my dad left, he gave me his Bible, and I told my dad, I don't want your Bible. He left it on my kitchen counter anyway, walked out the door. As soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible, and I threw it in the trash can. I wanted nothing to do with God, and certainly nothing to do with the Bible. And after that visit, it was more than obvious to my parents that I was hopeless. But my parents committed not to focus upon hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over a hundred prayer warriors from their church, from their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mom began to pray a bold prayer. God, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, she fasted 
every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She spent hours every morning in her prayer closet, on her knees, reading the Bible, crying out to God, interceding for me, for many, many others. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the Father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door, and on my doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana, which is legal here, right? It's not? Okay. Some want to make it legal. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I had started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlantic City Detention Center. So I tried calling home, just dreading making that phone call, as I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But mom's first words were, son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The apostle Paul says in Romans chapter two, verse four, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Notice how Paul isn't saying that it's God's anger. It's not God's wrath, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was Excited to get that phone call, if you could believe it or not, because I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears. She knew she had to do like that good old hymn says, count your blessings, name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down, and next to the phone happened to be a calculator. And she tore off a little piece of the adding machine tape, and she wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is, is in a safe place <laughs> compared to before. And it called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list and counting her blessings. And when I got out of prison, this list of blessings was longer and taller than she is, both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block, and I passed by this garbage can, and I thought, this is my life. I was about to pass it by, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. 
I bent over, picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. Took that New Testament back to my cell, opened up that good book. For the first time, I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But I was not thinking, this is the Word of God. I just thought, I've got tons of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But as many of you know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, ladies and gentlemen, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion wasn't a pretty sight. And I thought things were going to get worse. I was wrong. A couple weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. I was handcuffed. She shut the door behind me. I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words. So she wrote something on a piece of paper, slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down, and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. The days after were dark and lonely. I was sentenced to six years, better than 10 years to life. But news of my HIV status felt like a death sentence. One night I was laying in my bed and I look over the cold metal bunk above me. Somebody scribbled something and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation, Judah, to tell me that if God could have a plan for Judah in exile, in rebellion, he could have a plan for me. I had no clue where that plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my idols. The most obvious was drugs. Within a few months, he delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols. And there was just this one thing that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain and I asked him his, his opinion. I'm a brand new Christian. I know very little about the Bible. And I thought, I got to ask someone who studied the Bible, gone to cemetery, seminary, the chaplain. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me the Bible doesn't condemn same-sex relationships. And he went to his bookshelf, got a book, and he said, here, this book explains that view. So think about it. With much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for same-sex relationships. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And from a human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book 
or a clear distortion of God and His Word. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain, which meant I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, looking for justification. I wanted to find any shred of evidence. So I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked, and I looked, and I looked, and I couldn't find any. So I was at this turning point, a crossroads. Either abandon God in His Word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions, get this, by allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship. How? By freeing myself from my sexuality. By not allowing my desires to control who I am. And live as a follower of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I followed Jesus. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. That's true. But as sinners, we just want to add to God's truth. And I added, so therefore, God doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who might say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. But after reading the Bible, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Can I say it again? Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires, whether sexual or romantic. My identity is not gay. It is not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy, for I am holy. You know, before I had become a Christian, I had thought to become a Christian, I had become a heterosexual. And what does that mean? I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. As a matter of fact, I had even thought the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. But I realized that even if a man had opposite sex attractions, he would still need to flee temptation and resist sin. So heterosexuality, it's the right direction, just not the right goal. Because think about this. God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. But neither did God say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. They're both the wrong secular Freudian categories. Instead, God says, be holy, for I am holy. Therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That is not the right goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or whether I'm tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of temptations, but change is a spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling or tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God. 
in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal His plan for my life. And He called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And I realized it didn't matter where I was, whether I was in prison or out of prison, because my call to ministry would remain the same regardless of location. With that change of heart, God did another miracle, and He shortened my prison sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left my prison sentence, I knew that I needed to learn more about the Bible. So I called them, collected my parents, told them I think God's calling me to ministry, and then I asked them to mail me an application to Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into mid prison. I got it torn up and began filling it out until I realized I needed references, not from anybody. These had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison, but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my references. So amazingly, I actually was accepted. I was released from prison in July of 2001, started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis in 2007, received my doctorate of ministry in 2014, and then back in 2011, I had the incredible privilege of co-authoring a book with my mom called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. We wrote this together. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two, she wrote chapter, she wrote all the odd chapters, I wrote the even chapters because we wanted to tell you from our own voice how you can have the same situation told from two totally different perspectives, a parent and a prodigal. This book is um, in Chinese, in Spanish, eight different languages, um, and there's a free eight-week discussion guide at the back that several Christian high schools are using, um, uh, which is incredible, because who would have thought that our testimony would be used as a textbook? Christian high schools are using it. Small groups are using it, parents are using it, and it makes sense because our kids are being flooded with books and resources and stories from the world on sexuality and gender. And the worst part is we're doing little or nothing about it. You hear these stories. I'm so happy. I'm so happy that I'm, I'm finally embracing who I am. Let me really be clear. God isn't so concerned about our holiness, about our happiness, without us being holy. And nowhere in Scripture does it ever say, embrace yourself. Rather, it's the opposite. Deny yourself and follow Jesus. You know, I'm really convinced the job to teach sex education does not belong in the hands of the public schools. It also doesn't belong in the hands of TikTok. You know who holds the responsibility to teach our kids? It's actually not the youth pastor's main responsibility. Now, 
he better talk about it, or she or the leaders better talk about it. And please, parent, do not pull your kids out if they're going to talk about sexuality in youth group. That essentially is saying, I do not want you to learn about biblical sexuality. Go ahead and learn from Google. That's what you're saying. Go ahead, learn from the locker room. Go ahead, learn from public school. Don't learn from church. That's the wrong place because I'm going to pull you out. But actually, youth group, that's not the main place. That's only secondary, supplemental. Who holds the main responsibility? Parents. And you know who else? Grandparents. Because parents, you need help. And grandparents, you got too much time on your hands. <laughs> You're like, no, I don't. Here, here's the real reason, grandma, grandpa. Think back when you were teenagers. How much did you or your peers listen to your parents at that age? Maybe right now, Grandpa, you have more of a listening ear to the grandkids that the parents do. Are we using it or are we just wasting it? Are we using it to throw a lifeline to our grandkids that are drowning in a tsunami of lies? Are we? Or are we standing back and just spoiling them and not saying anything? You know, there was a time where it was okay to be silent. It was okay to do little or nothing. No more. Oh, my, but my grandkids are, are so young. When, when is it too early? Not the right question. The right question today is, when is it too late? I used to say, we need to talk to our kids starting from six to eight. No more. You know what's the age now? three to five. If the world is doing three to five years old, what makes us think we could wait till they're 10 or 12 or 14? I gave this challenge in rural Oklahoma, and this grandmother made a beeline toward a book table. And, and I think book, we got, book tables are out, out here and here. We, we move one over there. But she made a beeline, and, and she's like, I need I need 10 books. I was like, wow, I think you just need one. No, young man, I need 10. One for myself, nine for every one of my grandchildren. She's like, I ain't taking no chances. <laughs> A grandmother, she said, I'm going to read the book with them. I'm going to use that study guide. Silence is no longer an option. I know you might be thinking, what do I say? I wrote my newest book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, named 2020 Book of the Year for Social Issues by Outreach Magazine, to help us understand what is biblical sexuality, because oftentimes this is what we say about it. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. That's important. But we can't simply live a, a Christian life on God's no. What is God's yes? It's chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. Holy sexuality, and that is good news for all. Yet my book was for adults and young adults, and in the t several years that it's been out, I realized we need something for teens, right? We need something for teens, well, right now I'm finishing up Holy Sexuality Teen Curriculum. I'm really excited about this. I've been working on this for three years, um, and, I, and I have several experts working with me, curriculum experts, not just people kind of throw, throw together a study guide. This is actually, a, a, we call these instructional designers, to help me kind of formulate. So this is going to be a 12-lesson video curriculum. What, how are kids connecting today? Video, right? I mean... I want them to read, but a lot of them are not reading. So this is a video curriculum. We're going to use high-quality animation. Animation is kind of where it's at now, which, by the way, it's not, not cheap. 
but I've got some very generous donors that are really sold on this importance of, of, of saving our youth. The goal of this is to help this younger generation understand, embrace, and celebrate biblical sexuality. So this will be out in 2023, beginning of 2023. We're recording right now, and animation studios are helping me with, with it right now, but we're really excited. If you, could, you can scan this QR code and jot this down. But this is the first curriculum of its kind, because the majority of other curriculum are, are written for churches. That's good, but is that the primary place? No, where's the primary place? at home with parents or grandparents and their teens. So this is actually the first of its kind to do that. It's a resource to give to you parents that are asking, I don't know what to do. And it's like, okay, use this resource as a springboard to have these conversations with our kids because we must. Silence is no longer an option. Amazingly, God has given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. My, my parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, talking about God's grace and truth on this issue of sexuality. But this question, who am I? You might think, well, what difference does it make? I mean, how we identify. Whether I identify as a lawyer, whether I identify as someone says I'm gay, or whether someone says I'm same-sex attracted, what difference does it make? It's a big difference. How we answer that question impacts our thoughts, our actions, our choices, and our relationships. How we answer this question, who am I, actually suggests close relationships between essence and ethics. Who we are, essence, impacts how we live, ethics. And the opposite is true. How we live impacts who we are, or at least how we view we, who we are. Because if you have a flawed view of who you are, you're going to have a flawed personal ethic. And if you have a flawed personal ethic, you're going to have a flawed view of who you are. Let's say there's a teenager and says, I'm a partier. Or an adult, I'm a partier. Is that going to influence the choices he makes? Of course it is. person that says, uh, I am gay, is that going to influence what this person thinks about or the relationships this person has? Yes. Definitely. Flawed view of who you are, you're going to have a flawed personal ethic. Personhood affects practice. Practice affects personhood. When I lived as a gay man, my whole world was gay. All I thought about, all my choices, all my relationships, all gay. I lived in an apartment complex that was 90% gay men. I went, worked out at a gay gym. I bought my groceries at what we nicknamed the Gay Kroger. I bought my new sports car from a gay car dealer. My bookkeeper was gay. My housekeeper was gay. Everything and everyone around me affirmed what my flesh was saying. I am gay. You see, I think we're missing. If there's one thing that I think Christians you're missing, you know, I, I've come out of that world. What I think we're missing, we don't fully understand how sexuality has been completely confused with identity. Why is that? For example, we see this, this is sinful behavior. That's true, but the world does not see it in that way. If you were to see me 20 years ago before I was a Christian, and you were, say, and you were to tell me, you know, this is sin, this behavior is sin, I won't hear you as saying, oh, what you're saying is my relationships is sinful, or my actions are sinful. No, you know what I would hear you say? I would hear you say, my whole person from head to toe is reprehensible to God. Why? 
because I conflate my sexuality, I confuse my sexuality for who I am. This goes beyond talking to them about sinful behavior. We need to first talk about identity and wrong identity. The term gay. What, what do we put before that? The verb, being gay. What does being mean? It talks about our essence, about our personhood. Not feeling gay, not doing gay. That's actually much more accurate. But it's being gay, who we are. You see, being gay no longer means what I'm attracted to or what I desire or what I do. It has fully become who I am. This subtle shift from what, meaning what I do, what I feel, to who, who I am, has created this radically distorted view of personhood. And yet I don't know of any other feeling that we've made it who we are. Like, if you were to say, I'm happy, no one would hear that as, oh, that's who you are. No, that's what you feel now. Great. I don't know of any action that we've made it who we are. I don't know of any sinful behavior that we've made it who we are. If someone's a gossiper, you're a gossiper. No one would think that's who you are. But that's what you do. So stop it. And yet, gay, think about this. Gay has become who a person is, not what they feel, not what, they, what they're attracted to, not what they do. It has become who, and Christians are even thinking this too. Should, should attraction or desires really describe who we are at our most basic level? See, gay, straight, bi, homosexual, heterosexual, bisexual should not just define people they should define our feelings. Let me say it again. Heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual should not actually describe people, but they describe our feelings or our actions. Are you getting that? This is really important because, see, we are kind of following the world. Let's stop following the world and let's make this correction, the biblical correction. Sexuality is about our attractions and our desires and our actions, not about personhood. You see, sexuality should not be who we are, but how we are. Because heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, remember I said it was a secular Freudian category? They turn our desires into personhood, experience into essence. So experience, meaning our attractions, our, our actions, it reigns supreme. That's the only thing that matters today. If you think something... That's your truth, right? Isn't that what Oprah says, essentially? If you think something, that's your truth. And speak your truth. Everyone, we all need to speak our truths. No, there's one truth. Not spoken by us, but spoken by God. Amen? So, who am I? Who are you? Who are we? And how does that affect sharing Christ with those in the gay community? Well... To answer this question, who am I, we need to start with God. Who am I? There's a discipline in theology called theological anthropology. It helps us to understand who we are as human beings through God's eyes. We can't understand human sexuality without beginning there with theological anthropology. And what is that? We're creating God's image. 
but we're also all fallen. So how does that, we're creating God's image, but we're also all fallen, theological anthropology, help us to understand sexuality? Number one, it rebukes the arrogant condemner. You might know this person. They look down their noses at those gay people. They're ruining our country. No, sin is ruining our country. They're not our enemies. Regardless of anyone's age, sex, or ethnicity, regardless of whether someone is submission to God or not, they're all created in the image of God. Even that transgender person, even that lesbian neighbor, they're created in God's image and should be treated with dignity and respect. Now, they're not a child of God yet until they believe in Jesus. Child of God and image of God are not the same concepts. But everyone is treated, should be treated with respect. You know, the foundation for justice is not because we just want to be nice people. The only foundation for justice is because we're all created in the image of God. Second, theological anthropology avoids a common incorrect diagnosis. How many of you guys have ever heard this before? That the root causes of same-sex attractions are an absent father, dominant mother, or abuse in one's childhood. Anyone hear something like that before? Now, certainly those things influence us, but an influence is not the same thing as a cause. Because if we think that our childhood problems are the cause for our adult problems, that's not biblical, but Freudian. Sigmund Freud believed that. And sometimes we're more busy chasing after Freud than Jesus. Then what is the root cause of any sin behavior? Our own sin nature. We're all fallen. And this is really helpful, I think, for some parents out there. You might have that wayward child, that, that daughter that identifies as lesbian, and you always wonder, what have I done wrong? Please hear me. It's not your fault. Perfect parents does not guarantee perfect children. Look, look at Adam and Eve. The job of a Christian parent is not to produce godly children, but the job of a Christian parent is just to be a godly parent. Third, it affirms repentance and rejects sinful acts and desires because there's this growing movement called the gay celibate Christian movement, the gay celibate Christian movement. And you're like, well, what's so wrong about that? Well, they're gay, they're not acting on it, and they're just being celibate. The problem is they don't really understand about what repentance is all about. They think it's just about the actions. Just don't act on it. I hear this all the time. I actually just had a pastor that told me, oh, that, well, they, they just shouldn't act on it, right? That sounds right until you read the Bible, until you read Jesus' words when he says, if a man looks lustfully at a woman, as long as he doesn't act on it, he's fine. Is that what that verse says? I can't remember. Help me out here. No, it says he's already committed adultery, right? So repentance is not just about the action. It's about the desires as well. Now, th there's a difference between temptation. We need to think biblically here. The word attraction is, I, is too ambiguous. The Bible uses desire and temptation, not the word attraction. And so we need to affirm repentance. Why in the world would someone identify by their sin? If you struggle with lust, would it be right for you to say, I'm a lustful Christian? Yes or no? Absolutely not. If you struggle with gossiping, I mean, I mean, we all struggle with something, but are you going to identify by that? I'm a gossiping Christian. I'm a jealous Christian. 
I'm a hating Christian, right? I mean, it's ridiculous. I'm an alcoholic. I mean, no. I mean, even alcoholism, this is my struggle with the AA. They continue to identify by, I'm an alcoholic. No, I, you may struggle with alcoholism, but I will not say I am an alcoholic. There's a difference. In the same way, why would I say I am gay? No, I'm a follower of Jesus. Anyone, any followers of Jesus in here? I do not want any adjective to modify who I am in Christ. I'm not a gay Christian. I'm not an ex-gay Christian. I am a Christian, period. Fourth, and I'm going to just finish with this last point, and the worship team can, can come out. But it helps us to answer the born gay question. So many times people are like, well, aren't people born gay? I mean, this is the way they are. Christians are even saying this. God made them this way. No. I don't even know people who are like, well, the Bible doesn't really address this born gay question. That's not right. Because though many people think they're born gay or their friends are born gay, Christians even think that. You know what Jesus says? You must be born again. You may think you're born an alcoholic. You must be born again. You may think you're born a gossiper, a liar, a cheater. You must be born again. You may think you're born a you fill in the blank. You must be born again. The old is gone. The new has come. In Christ, you're a new creation. That is not a message just for the gay community. That is a message for the whole world. You must be born again. You know, I think sometimes when I give my testimony, I don't realize how many people have never heard of a story like mine before. A man who used to identify as gay and now no longer does. And that is true. But you know, actually, that isn't how I would best summarize my testimony. This is how I would summarize my testimony. I once was blind and now I see I once was lost and now I'm found I once did not believe and now I believe in the Son of God and his name is Jesus that is my testimony I don't know how many of you guys do this, uh, but, you know, I, my parents and I were here a few years ago, and we were supposed to be here at this time last year in October. Must have been October 15th or 16th or 17th, around there. I canceled at the very, very last minute because my dad had a massive heart attack. He was unconscious for seven minutes, seven minutes of CPR. Any EMTs in here? That's a long time. They had to put a breathing tube, knocked out his teeth. So I canceled everything and I flew home with my mom. Amazingly, within a week, he bounced right back. I mean, it was like a Lazarus effect. I mean, he was just out and then, it was, and then he was in a coma three days and he bounced right back. He was like, 
and, and I would begin canceling all my talks. I, I travel 60 to 70 times a year. My dad normally travels with me 40 to 50 times a year with my mom. At 82, doing more ministry than most men in their 40s don't even do. And he told me, stop canceling your talks. He said, go and preach the gospel. And I did. And then he bounced back and we were traveling all, I mean, the beginning of the year, we were all busy. On June 30th, we had just come back from San Francisco uh, where we preached and ministered. And then the day after, went to the doctor for some checkups and stuff with my mom and he fainted and he hit his head really hard in the parking lot. And within 24 hours, the bleeding was just really extreme and went into a coma. Doctors, like that first day, wanted to pull the plug and we're like, we're not doing that because we believe in miracles. And then on July 3rd, that miracle happened and my dad was fully healed and he went home to be with the Lord. When my mom and I were at his bedside and his heart stopped, my mom looked at me and said, we're going to tell everyone that Dr. Leon Yuan is not dead. He is more alive than he ever was before. And my dad would want every one of you in this room to know and have that assurance of eternal life. Do you know coming to church does not save you? Do you know that? Do you know having parents who love Jesus and take you to church every Sunday, to take you to youth group, does not save you? Having a godly wife who loves Jesus and brings you to church every Sunday does not save you. You know what saves you? confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will have eternal life. If you don't know that, if you have not done that, today is the day. Let's stand. For those of you who have not made that full commitment to the Lord, where you're at, Say this prayer. You could do it quietly. You can do it in your head. Father, I know I'm a sinner. I deserve your penalty. But you love me so much that you sent Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, who lived a perfect life, died on the cross in my place, and then... He rose again on that third day so that I can rise with him. Help me, God, to live the rest of my days for you. Oh, God, I pray for the rest of us that you would help us to live with urgency. Lord, that we, you, would, you would help us to live as born-again believers, letting the world know what it means to follow Jesus. Lord, we love you 
but help us to love you more than life. For it's in the matchless, powerful, precious name of Jesus that we pray. The people of God said, amen.